Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. continuing in our series uh, through the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, um, please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, and we will pick up there in a moment. If you were with us last week, uh, you know that Ray Lowe was here, and we took a break from our Revelation series as he talked about excelling in the grace of giving. Uh, And we had a fantastic Sunday last Sunday. I would highly recommend the podcast uh, if you weren't here. But the Sunday before that, if you can think back an entire two weeks, uh, we jumped into the messiness of the book of Revelation. And we began to unpack this very intense narrative that spans the majority of the book. A brief outline of the book of Revelation might look something like this. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3. John receives seven messages to the seven churches, and John sees the glorified Jesus among his churches, walking amongst them, talking to them by the power of the Spirit. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 are the center, uh, the centering vision of the book of Revelation. We see the Creator God and the Lamb who was slain worshipped on the throne of heaven. Everything else in Revelation is going to flow out of chapters 4 and 5. The bulk of the book, chapters 6 through 19, uh, you have this intense series of events. The scroll is opened up, uh, which seems rather cryptic to us. And in the process, seven seals are broken, seven trumpets are sounded, and seven bowls of wrath are poured out on a beast. Uh, Babylon, well, actually Babylon, as we'll see today, is pictured as uh, a prostitute. Uh, and, and it's this center of, of the book of Revelation, 6 through 19, where we struggle. Um, the, the last two chapters, sorry, three chapters in the book, chapters 20 through 22, uh, things kind of come back into focus a bit. God brings a final act of judgment and renewal on creation, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth, which is this eternal place. And so Revelation, I will argue, is, is the most confusing book in the Bible, and potentially the most dangerous book in the Bible. But if you break up the book of Revelation into these four movements, you can see where our struggle is. Uh, the first two movements, this, these messages to the churches or even this stunning vision of the creator God and the lamb being worshipped on the throne of heaven, uh, those aren't particularly controversial. They stir us, but there's not a ton of controversy there. If you skip to the end of the book and read the final chapters as God eliminates, eradicates evil from the world and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, that isn't particularly controversial. But what do you do with the stuff in the middle? The bowls and the trumpets and the seals and the earthquakes and the plagues and the beast and the mark of the beast. That's where we really 
struggle? What do we do with this? How do we interpret it? How do we anticipate it? Uh, How do we decode its imagery and understand who and what it's referring to? How should chapters 6 through 19 uh, shape the way that we live? That is the great tension and the great mystery of the book of Revelation. This is what spawns the YouTube videos and the wacky conferences and the wild literature that we have on offer to help you interpret this book. Uh, In fact, just recently I received uh, this little booklet in the mail. Uh, I assume it was a mass mailing that went out to most of the city. Uh, But it's called National Sunday Law, A Shocking Glimpse Behind the Scenes. And the goal of this little booklet is to interpret the book of Revelation uh, for the modern day reader. And what it does as you read through this book is it lays out in great detail why they believe that America is actually the beast that arises out of the sea in the chapters we studied two weeks ago. Uh, And they say this, I'll quote. They say, It is no surprise that the greatest nation on earth should be mentioned in prophecy. What John sees pretends events shaping up in the United States that will most definitely affect you. Watch closely now as the scene unfolds. And then it goes on. America is the beast from the land, but the real beast, they claim, the beast from the sea, is the Pope. And the prostitute, who we're going to be reading about this morning, is actually a picture for the Catholic Church. Here's how these events are unfolding in our day. Here's how they should affect the way that you live. Uh, But before we get sucked in to uh, the latest um, mailer or YouTube video, or conference, uh, we've been asking as a church, as we work our way through this very confusing and controversial book, we've been asking, hey, what did these images mean to the original audience? How would a first century reader have received this prophetic, apocalyptic letter? Only after we've answered that question... Can we then import the message into our world? And that's what we'll attempt to do this morning as we tackle another uh, potentially confusing and controversial section. Uh, We pick up in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. uh, And remember that we're in the midst of this very intense series of sevens that are playing out through the bulk of the book. This is what it says. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. 
The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Let's pause there for a moment, as some of you are wondering why you came to River's Edge this morning. Let's rewind a little bit. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll remember that chapters 12 and 13 uh, were these chapters that introduced uh, the dragon or Satan, uh, the great enemy of God who rose up or empowered two beasts. The beast out of the sea uh, for the first century audience would have represented the line of Caesars, uh, these people giving themselves blasphemous names, claiming divinity, claiming to be the son of God. And the second beast from the land in their world represented the imperial worship cult who propped up Caesar and propped up his lies and caused everyone in the empire to worship him. The book of Revelation, from start to finish, is a brilliant critique of Rome and Roman power. And the fascinating thing was that if you knew your Old Testament and you knew Jesus and you knew the world that you lived in, then a lot of these things would have fallen into place. Uh, They would have taken a little bit of debate within the church, but eventually I think they would have been very clear what it was that John was getting at. Oh, yes, I see the beast, and oh, that makes sense that it would be Caesar. And the mark of the beast is allegiance to Caesar. And and things would have started uh, dropping into place. But the brilliant thing was that even though the early church would have understood what these symbols meant for them, that a Roman officer could have kicked in the door of the church, ripped the book of Revelation out of their hand, and had no idea what it was talking about. It would have gone completely over their heads. It wouldn't have made any sense. It was almost like a coded message to the first century church. It's a critique of Roman power and idolatry loaded with Old Testament imagery that the church could easily receive, especially being soaked in the Old Testament scriptures, but that was hidden in plain sight, that the Romans that they were talking about had no idea that they were being talked about. Now, in chapter 17, which we've just started into this morning, we are introduced to a new aspect of Roman power that is also being critiqued and condemned using apocalyptic imagery or symbols. John sees a woman or a prostitute whose name is Babylon. Uh, In their day and age, this woman or Babylon was becoming a symbol for Rome. Uh, This prostitute is actually a parody of the goddess Roma, a a beautiful goddess who was the personification of Rome, the eternal city. But uh, these images of Babylon or uh, the prostitute actually become a critique of Rome's economic exploitation, okay? Critique of Rome's economic exploitation. The beast who we studied before was a critique of Caesar's divine claims and his beastly military authority. But Rome, with her economic exploitation and great wealth, actually rides on the back of the beast, 
which again is symbolic, that one is dependent on the other. Um, The beast with its divine claims and its military power of Caesar actually becomes the very basis of the economic exploitation uh, that brings incredible wealth into Rome and makes it the envy of the world. Okay, let's keep reading. This is verse 6. It says, I saw that the woman, or Rome, was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, there were literally seven hills in Rome. That Rome, The city of Rome was built on seven hills. Verse 10, they are also seven kings, or some people would say that's the fullness of emperors. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seventh, and he's going to his destruction. Most people think that this is a reference to the Caesars, the, the most recent Caesars, and that you can actually date the book of Revelation based on what they're talking about right now. How many Caesars have come? Who's on the throne right now? How many are yet to come? Verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Most interpreters of the book of Revelation believe this is referring to 10 client kings or kings that have been conquered by Rome but give their allegiance to Rome. They're under Roman rule. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, languages, and nations. So the waters represent all these peoples of the earth which the beast rules over along with the city of Rome. And then there's this really interesting ending here, verse 16. It says, The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute, or Rome. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Are you guys encouraged this morning so far? Uh, For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are, are fulfilled. Last verse for us this morning. Pay attention. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So in case you missed it, the Rome prostitute connection, it's made explicit. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. 
Now, in the first century world, there is one great city that rules over the kings of the earth, and all roads lead there. It is Rome, the center of the universe. And Rome was personified, deified, and worshipped via Roma Eterna and Dia Roma, which was eternal Rome or the goddess Rome. I think we have a picture. Uh, She was actually worshipped. Who on earth has ever seen wealth and splendor like this? She might really be an eternal city like they claim. She is worthy of worship But as the curtain is pulled back, we see the truth. Though Rome is clad in luxury, she is actually a prostitute who has fornicated with the inhabitants of the earth and become drunk with the blood of the saints. She rules over ten client kings, but makes them wage war on the people of God. And eventually, those same client kings will turn on Rome herself and devour her. In the meantime, until that day, Rome is pictured as a prostitute, a seductive and self-glorifying city. And central to this seduction is the wine by which she intoxicates the nations. And this wine was the very popular belief that if you submitted to Rome and you worshipped her, that you too could share in her wealth. Where did all this wealth come from? Well, it starts with the beast or Caesar being worshipped and taking absolute military and political control over a region. But after that happened... There was a steady flow of cash in in the form of heavy taxes that moved money from the conquered places into the center, into Rome herself. And so what happens is that Rome accumulates this massive amount of wealth and along the way kills countless innocent people and takes countless others into slavery. There's this dark side to the economics of Rome. The prostitute actually rides on the backs of many waters, of many peoples who she has conquered. But the illusion, the intoxicating illusion is this. If you submit to Rome, if you worship Rome, if you join in her idolatry and in her evil practices, then you too can share in her wealth. This is the intoxicating lie that so many have bought into. And in fact, uh, many are profiting from their dealings with Rome. If you were to continue reading in chapter 18, you'll see that it talks about the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the shipping captains of the earth. And what they all have in common is that they are all profiting tremendously from Rome and Roman rule. These are a few excerpts. 
For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one... No one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and human beings sold as slaves. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? Rome seems to be the light of the world. But it is built off of economic exploitation and the backs of slaves. And all the kings and merchants and shippers and sellers of the earth will mourn when she falls, for they too shared in her ill-gotten wealth. And so Revelation comes to us as a brilliant piece of resistance literature because it pulls back the curtain and reveals the true nature of this beastly empire. Caesar is not divine. Rome is not eternal. And the seductive call to share in her wealth and in her idolatry must be resisted. But note the pattern here that plays out in Revelation. Revelation is not saying resist Rome because she persecutes Christians. It's actually not the message. It's actually saying Rome is evil and must be resisted and therefore persecution will result. Richard Bauckham, one of my favorite scholars on the book of Revelation, says it this way. He says, It is a serious mistake to suppose that Revelation opposes the Roman Empire solely because of its persecution of Christians. Rather, Revelation advances a thoroughgoing prophetic critique of the system of Roman power. It is a critique which makes Revelation the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. It is not simply because Rome persecutes Christians that Christians must oppose Rome. Rather, it is because Christians must disassociate themselves from the evil of the Roman system that they are likely to suffer persecution. And the call on the life of a disciple of Jesus actually comes into focus. In fact, if you look at chapter 18, verse 4, there is a voice from heaven, the call of heaven to the people of God, and the call is this, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. And Babylon is is very stock biblical imagery that's used all the way through Scripture. If we have time next week, we'll dive into that. 
But what this is saying is, hey, do not take part in her evil, even though it makes you rich. And this is the call that we need to hear today. We live in a country, in an empire, that has many beautiful things, but that also carries some of the marks of Babylon. We are the wealthiest country in human history. We have uh, the largest and best military in the world and arguably in human history. Something like 800 military bases around the world. We have a steady flow of cash moving from poor and developing nations into American pockets through enslaving systems of national debt. And in many cases, we deliberately trapped poor countries in debt which they could never repay, and they remain to this day trapped in that debt as their limited resources flow from their country into ours. In fact, N.T. Wright, one of the best uh, Bible scholars alive today, says the greatest single thing we could do to bring justice to the earth would be to eliminate or forgive enslaving third world debt that's been placed on poor countries. The debt which uh, helps power our economy at their expense. As a separate issue, uh, many of our industries and the clothing industry in particular is built on the backs of less fortunate people some of them underpaid in the form of sweatshops, and some of them literally slaves, meaning that they are forced to work without pay to make stuff really cheap so that we can buy it. In fact, many of the clothes that we are wearing right now were likely made by slaves. The countries and merchants of the earth come to trade and get rich off of American wealth. We have what we have, not just through hard work and the sweat of our brow, but also from the backs of poor countries who are forced to give their money to us. I see so much good in the country that we live in. But if we are to hear the prophetic critique of economic exploitation, we also have to be willing to be challenged by this call of revelation. Because whether we like it or not, there is a dark side to empire, not just a light. There's a dark side that, that none of us want to see that most of our documentaries seek to expose, the, the, the side that is better left out of sight and out of mind. There are elements of Babylon that are alive and well today. And so as we read Revelation, we need to hear the call of God to, quote, come out of her, my people, to come out of Babylon, 
In the first century, this was not a literal call to withdraw and go somewhere else. God is not calling you to go move out to the woods and live off the land in isolation. God's not asking you to become a hermit. But rather, it is a metaphorical coming out in which we distance ourselves, disassociate ourselves with the elements of Babylon that we find in our culture. And there are beautiful things about our country. I I really can't say that enough. There is so much that we can celebrate and thank God for. We have millions of Americans who are out to do good and oppose evil here at home and around the world. But Revelation, and really the Bible as a whole, is written from the underside of history. It is written by those who are under the grip of empire, who see her dark side. And I will argue there is a massive difference between America and Rome between America and Nazi Germany, between America and Russia, between America and you fill in the blank. There's a massive difference that I would stand up for and argue and advocate. But we still have to hear the the critique of empire, which, which points out that which is not of God which points out the places where economic exploitation still happens. The call of Revelation on the early church was not simply to refrain from worshiping Caesar as divine. It wasn't simply saying, hey, don't give allegiance to him. Don't worship him. Ignore the hype. It was more than that. It was also a call to withdraw and to disassociate from the dark economic practices which powered the Roman machine. Rome isn't simply evil because Caesar demands worship and divine status. That's the beast. It is also corrupted in its economic practices which take advantage of others and even use slave labor, abusing its power to generate Wealth, that's the prostitute. And so the question we're left with this morning is this. What does it look like for us to come out of Babylon? To disassociate ourselves from corrupt patterns and practices that are embedded in empire? What does it look like for us to reject the intoxicating wine that empire offers? And at this point, We could go a hundred different directions. So what I want to share next isn't necessarily going to be universal for everyone, but it's particular for me. And and as I share from my life and what I've been reflecting on this week, I'm guessing there's going to be some resonance with others as well. So as I've been searching my heart before this passage, I've been convicted on several things, several ways in which I need to disassociate from Babylonian practices of our day. So for me, this is it. Number one, uh, commit to buying ethically made things. For me personally, I love to shop at H&M. 
Their stuff fits great. Their prices are unbeatable. I don't shop very often, but I love to go there. Uh, Through my own reading and the things I was exposed to, it came to my attention that their things, for the most part, are not ethically made. And so that put me into this place of having to pray through that. What does it look like for me to avoid things that are unethically made? Uh, and, and so I've had to go through the pains, and this is, I think, kind of annoying, if we're honest, as an American consumer. We, the one thing we look at is the price tag. How's the price? Does it fit? Awesome. It's really annoying to have to go beyond that and, and try and figure out what you're buying and where it came from, what the true cost was. But for me personally, I'm now at a place where I would rather buy one pair of ethically made shorts from REI than three pairs for the same price at H&M. And my wife still won't let me wear them on a Sunday, even though they're ethically made. But that's a whole nother sermon. Uh, But as we buy things, we, we actually need to think about this. Most of us can grow leaps and bounds in thinking through where our stuff comes from, who made it, and at what cost. Will I share in the wealth of Babylon at the cost of others, or will I choose to buy things that are ethically made? As of this moment, there are more slaves in the world than there have ever been at any point in human history. The estimates range from 20 to 46 million slaves all across the world in all sorts of different industries and situations, forced to labor for profit and the wealth of empire. To come out of Babylon means that we see those slaves that we work in the ways that we can to free those slaves, and that we refuse to support the industries, whether it's pornography or fast fashion and cheap clothes or anything in between, we refuse to support the industries that enslave human beings to make cheap products. We fight those systems in every way that we can, in, through prayer, through nonprofit, through our time. But one of the best things that we can do as Americans is to think about where our money goes. Think about your dollars. Last week, Ray challenged us to think about how we give. If anything, this week is challenging us to think about how we spend. Where are your dollars going? Who are they supporting? Black Friday is less than two weeks away. In the next six weeks, Americans will spend billions and billions of dollars buying stuff. It's a very good time to think critically as disciples of Jesus about where our dollars are going and which economic practices we're supporting along the way. Will we commit to simplicity and ethically made items, or will we jump into the rush and flow of Babylon, built on the backs of slaves? Number two, for me personally, uh, I have to choose to disassociate from political religions. 
Uh, as America becomes increasingly post-Christian, uh, more and more we are finding our meaning, our purpose, and our passion in politics. As of a few days ago, we stepped into a new election year, which means most of what you're going to hear about from now until next November is the election. And if this election is anything like the last election or anything like the one before that, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. I can't predict that. <laughs> but I can tell you exactly what's going to happen as that election approaches. The fate of America will be at stake. Your personal well-being will be at stake. One of the candidates is going to be the Antichrist. And one of the candidates will be a quasi-messianic quasi figure who, who's come to rescue and save our country. As we approach an election, those who are born and bred in Babylon are going to lose their minds. I don't care who you vote for. I really don't. But as followers of Jesus, we are rooted in a different reality. We do not worship her politics. We do not worship her politicians. I won't tell you who to vote for, but I will tell you who to worship. I will tell you where to put your hope and your trust. We have one Savior and he's not on the ballot this year. Number three, for me personally, I uh, sense a conviction to disassociate from the call to empire. Uh, and that's going to sound a bit vague at first, uh, but in part that means that as followers of Jesus, we reject the myth of American innocence which says that America can only do good and never does bad, and that America is always the victim. Uh, and it sounds kind of harmless to think that way, but I think it's another way of deifying a human institution uh, by saying it's always innocent and can do no wrong. Uh, instead, we are realists. We recognize that America, like any group of human beings, no matter how well-meaning, is imperfect. That means that we can do wrong. That means that from time to time, we do wrong. And oftentimes, we do that in the name of power, prosperity, and profit. And so we reject uh, the call to empire and the, and the idolizing of the American economy. We reject the idea that our nation is, quote, the greatest nation on earth, or the greatest nation to ever exist on earth, and that somehow our politicians or our politics or a form of government are, again, somehow the best thing that has ever graced God's creation. These are some of the intoxicating cups that we are given to drink. 
the intoxicating cup of consumerism and fast fashion, cheap stuff that is unethically made, built on the backs of slaves. The intoxicating cup of fanatical politics, placing our hope and faith and trust in savior-like candidates, making politics function like our religion. The intoxicating call of empire and maintaining our own greatness at the cost of others. These cups are really fun to drink from. They are intoxicating. In fact, they swallow people whole. But Revelation says that the intoxicating cups of the Roman prostitute were gold on the outside and contained abominations on the inside. They look beautiful, but there's something at the heart of them that is not right. And so, the call of Revelation comes with a freedom to rejoice in the good that we have. I would not prefer to live in any other country in the world. I can give an entire separate teaching and separate sermon on on the beauty that we have here that is worth protecting, okay? So that's, that's a different message. This morning, we're allowing ourselves to hear the critique of Revelation, which says that the Babylons of the world, that the empires of the world will have a dark side. There, there's an underbelly there that the Bible can see and points out to us. And so the call of Revelation for us this morning is a call to resist the corrupt patterns of empire, to reject the economic exploitation of others and the incredible wealth that accompanies it. To reject those intoxicating cups that empire offers and must offer in order to maintain empire. And ultimately, Revelation tells us that the Babylons of this world, that every um, corrupt and imperfect human institution will fall. And so we rejoice in that, that one day there will be no more slavery. 46 million slaves and counting will be free. We rejoice in that, but as we witness the prophetic future fall of the Babylons of this world, it is also a call to come out of her, to not share in her fate. Instead, we are called to become prophetic witnesses against the elements of empire, maintaining our saltiness in the midst of a broken world. We rejoice in the good, but we stand as prophetic witnesses against the bad at any cost. We'll end with this, a quote and a question. First, the quote from our friend Jerry Sitzer. He says, yeah, you can cheer for that. Uh, As the long dominance of cultural Christianity fades, being Christian will most likely become less culturally popular and dominant, but more meaningful.
This will only happen if Christians distance themselves from the quest for power, popularity, and prestige. And the question that I'll leave us with is this. What does it look like for you to come out of Babylon? Economically, politically, spiritually, in any sense you can think of, what does it look like to love the place you're in, but to come out of the the Babylonian elements that we find in our midst? So I'm going to pray. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. And we don't have a ton of time. Um, I literally want us to take like two minutes to, to just sit and allow God to speak to us on this issue. If we had 20 minutes, I would take 20 minutes. And some of you are grateful that we don't. We have like two minutes. So I'm going to say a prayer for us. Um, the three things that I listed up there, maybe they resonate with you, maybe they don't. That was from me, from my personal thinking before the Lord. But, but I think God wants to speak to you as well. Every single follower of Jesus is called to come out of Babylon and place their faith, their hope, their trust, their allegiances, their patterns, their practices, their giving, their spending. All of it is, is to fall in line with the kingdom of God. Let's pray.